on the American church. Nominal Christians are people who identify as Christians, but their faith doesn't go beyond claiming the name Christian. Their supposed faith in Jesus has no bearing on their day-to-day lives. Nominal Christians take a minimalist approach to their faith. What that means is that nominal Christians may go to church, but it's not a priority for them. Nominal Christians are usually moral people, but it's a morality defined by the world than by Scripture. Nominal Christians claim to believe in Jesus, but they have no concern about whether other Christians, believe, other people believe in Jesus or not. Nominal Christians are more concerned with their children being successful at things like academics and athletics and being productive members of society than they are with ensuring that their children are faithful followers of Jesus. Now, there are several dangers of nominal Christianity. One of the dangers of nominal Christianity is the complacency it brings. Nominal Christianity is easy. It doesn't require a changed life. The nominal Christian never has to wrestle with living out hard passages of Scripture that say things like believers should turn the other cheek or that we're supposed to love and do good for those who hate us or that we're supposed to go and make disciples of all people or that we're supposed to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice or be renewed in our minds so that we don't share the world's values, priorities, and attitudes or not to do anything through selfish ambition and consider others as better than you or do all things without griping and complaining, or be holy in all of our conduct because Jesus is holy. No, the nominal Christian never has to worry about these things because, hey, nobody's perfect. Another reason that nominal Christianity is dangerous is that nominal Christianity really isn't Christianity at all. Jesus confirms this when He says that not everyone who says to Him, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God. In fact, he says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23, that many people will say to him, Lord, Lord, on judgment day, and he will tell them to depart because he never knew them. Nominal Christianity deceives those who are separated from Jesus into believing they are reconciled to Jesus, despite the fact they never really live for Jesus. The ease and complacency that come through nominal Christianity makes it difficult to wake people up so that they see their need for Jesus. One of the reasons for this difficulty is that nominal Christians have often done something that they claim demonstrates that they have chosen Jesus. Perhaps they were baptized. Perhaps they joined the church. Perhaps they prayed a prayer. But did they really choose Jesus in what they did? And what does it look like to really choose Jesus? So what we're going to look at this morning. Open your Bible to Luke chapter 9, verse 57, page 791 in the Pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. The Gospel of Luke says, Not happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, Let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. 
And Jesus said to him, No one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. The title of the message this morning is Following Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we love You today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. You are far more worthy than what our minds can comprehend. Father, today as we gather here in Your name and as we gather here with a desire to learn from Your Word, Guide us that we would lay aside the cares of life, that our hearts and minds would be centered upon Your Word and what it is that You're saying to us today. And Lord, as we look at this passage and what happens in it, Father, let Your Holy Spirit come and enlighten the eyes of our understanding that we would understand what's going on here. Father, let us see the call of Jesus and what it means to truly choose Jesus in our lives. Father, there is such a temptation in our day to be lulled to sleep by nominal Christianity. There's such a temptation in our day to ignore passages like this or to minimize what it means. But God, let us not do that today. Today, pour Your Spirit out upon us. Let Him quicken our hearts and prick our minds that we would understand the greatness of Jesus Christ and what it truly means to choose Him and to follow Him in our lives. Oh God, if there are any here today, and Lord, they are lukewarm or backslidden or nominal in their faith for Jesus Christ, make that very apparent to them through Your Word and through Your Spirit. Father, let us all leave here today knowing exactly where we stand with You. Help us to not deceive ourselves. Help us not to listen to the world, the flesh, the devil that would try to lead us astray. But, oh God, let Your Word be the authority in our lives today. Let Your Spirit make it living and active. We need You. We need You to save the lost. We need You to restore the backslider. We need You to encourage the discouraged. We need You. We need You to disturb the complacent, to wake up the sleeping, and to bring us all from being nominal Christians we are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. We ask all of this in His mighty and precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Three different people encounter Jesus in this passage. And each one displays some sort of an interest in following Jesus. And yet when Jesus responds to their interest, He forces them to make a choice. Would they choose Him in a way that would demonstrate a legitimate commitment to Him? Right? Jesus was never interested in nominal followers. Anytime crowds gathered around Jesus, He always said something that was exceedingly hard to force those people to choose whether or not they really wanted Jesus or whether or not they wanted to just do their own thing. Jesus' interest has always been in fully devoted followers. Nothing has changed from this day in Scripture to the day that we're living in now. When someone expresses an interest in following Jesus, Jesus brings them to a place where they must make a choice. And their choice will demonstrate whether they are nominal believers or whether or not they are fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And what is the choice that we must make if we are to be fully devoted followers of Jesus? Well, to follow Jesus, I must choose Jesus. That's a pretty simple idea. But let's not let the simplicity of the 
idea confuse us. It is simple, but it is profoundly difficult to live out. Choosing Jesus, truly choosing Jesus, challenges us and changes us in the very core of our being. No one chooses Jesus and remains the same. That choice, that connection to Jesus brings legitimate, life-changing effects into our life right here and right now. Now this passage, it shows us three characteristics of the choice that must be there for us to make a legitimate choice for Jesus. Now as we get into this, one thing I want to say is, It is not we have one of these. Choosing Jesus means all three of these must be present in our life. All three of these make up that one choice of Jesus that leads us to following Him. But first, it must be an unwavering choice. The man comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds like a great statement, right? I'm here. I want to do your will. I'm going wherever it is that you want me to go. And then Jesus responds in a way that's interesting. He doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. Instead, he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He doesn't tell him, yes, you can follow me or no, you can't. What he tells him is, count the cost. Understand what it is you're saying when you say you will follow me wherever I go. Understand exactly what that means. Right? It was a test of resolve whether or not this man would follow him. Was this man willing to follow Jesus no matter what? Was he willing to follow Jesus if that choice meant sleeping on the side of the road? Was he willing to follow Jesus if that choice meant a loss of reputation and prestige in his community? Was he willing to follow Jesus if that meant great difficulty in his life? Or was he making a promise that was sort of light in reality? Was he just sort of saying, I will follow you wherever you go so long as it's easy, so long as it makes my life better, so long as it brings no difficulty into my life? Now, Jesus' response And just the the theme of the passage, it, it leads us to conclude that the man likely did not follow Jesus. The cost, the cost was too high. The cost was more than he was willing to pay. When we say that we're choosing Jesus, we're saying we are choosing to follow Jesus no matter what. To choose Jesus means that I follow him. No matter what that brings into my life. If it makes my life better, huzzah, that's great, wonderful. But if my choice of Jesus leads me to a path of difficulty and hardship, nothing changes. I have still chosen Jesus. Whether this choice makes life easy or hard, I'm following Jesus. Whether it increases my prestige among my peers or whether it lowers it, I'm following Jesus. If it means I have an abundance or if it means I have a lack, I am following Jesus. The choosing Jesus is saying no matter what happens, no matter what this choice brings, I'm going with Jesus. 
following Jesus absolutely requires this kind of a choice. I have not truly chosen Jesus if I am not willing to live in that way. Flip back maybe a page or so in your Bible to Luke 9, verses 23 through 25. Jesus, again, has a crowd. There's people around Him. And notice what He says. If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. Follow Me. Now, we're familiar with the cross in Scripture. It wasn't a decoration. It wasn't something you put on your lapel. It was an instrument of death. When Jesus told His disciples that they must follow Him and they would have to take up their cross to follow Him, He was telling them they had to be willing to die for this choice. That choosing Him, it meant giving up your life if necessary. That they would have to deny their desire for self-preservation. They would have to deny their desire for a life of ease. They would have to deny their their desire for a life of convenience and follow Him no matter where that led. Now, for 11 of the 12 apostles... Choosing Jesus led to actual, physical, painful death. That's what it means for us as well. Choosing Jesus means that we follow Jesus. Even when it means going through the desperation and loneliness and despair of Gethsemane. Choosing Jesus means that we follow Jesus even when it means ending up in the tomb because of Jesus. Choosing Jesus means that I follow Jesus without putting any limitations on my service or on my devotion to Him. I will do anything and everything that He wants me to do no matter what. Choosing Jesus means that I take up His cross and I follow Him wherever this leads. Choosing Jesus means that I deny myself so that I can follow Jesus. Choosing Jesus means that I surrender all of my life My values, my priorities, my attitudes, my actions, and my reactions so that I can develop in my life the attitudes and the actions and the reactions and the values and the priorities of Jesus. Anything less than this is nominal Christianity. And notice what Jesus goes on to say about the results of nominal Christianity. Whoever desires to save his life We'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? The reality is no one actually has to deny themselves and take up their cross to follow Jesus. We can all choose to live a life of ease. We can all choose to live a life of convenience, to follow Jesus when it's easy, to not follow Him when it's not. We can choose to maintain the world's values and priorities and attitudes. We can choose to act and react in our natural self. We can choose to save our life and do what we want. But in the end, we lose our souls in the process. There is no saving power In nominal Christianity. It is not a legitimate connection to Jesus. 
When we live a life choosing not to deny ourselves, not to take up our cross, to, to save our lives for ourselves, it demonstrates we have not legitimately, genuinely chosen Jesus in our lives. Choosing Jesus means I make an unwavering choice to follow Jesus no matter what. Secondly, it must be an unrivaled choice. This is very difficult. It's what he says here. He walks up to a guy and he says, follow me. But the guy said to him, first, let me go and bury my father. Now that seems like a reasonable request. I mean, what could be wrong with, with holding off just a little bit of time to, to go and to bury his father? Well, the problem first is that it was likely his father wasn't actually dead. His father may have been elderly and his father may have been sick, but it's unlikely he had actually died. According to Jewish custom, had his father been dead, he would have been at home with the family. But the Jewish mourning process was, was extended. It wasn't just a day or two. It was a long, really kind of a drawn out process. If his father had truly died and needed to be buried, he would have been at the family home with the family, not out listening to a teacher. So what he's saying is, let me hang around my house until my father dies, and then let me bury him, and then I'll come follow you. But, you know, honestly, even with that, it doesn't really sound so bad to want to take care of elderly and possibly sickly parents, especially considering how much emphasis the Old Testament put on children taking care of their parents once they got older. And yet this man is told by Jesus, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go preach the kingdom of God. Jesus tells him, you leave your family and you go do what I've told you to do. You put me first. My will and my want takes precedence and priority over all things, even your family. Now, that would have had to have been surprising in this day because while most teachers expected an, an, a level of devotion to them, no teacher would have, would have expected a level of devotion to them that was higher than that of family. According to the Old Testament, there was only one who deserved a greater loyalty and devotion than family did, and that was God. And what Jesus is saying here is that He deserves that level of devotion. Jesus is saying more than that. Jesus is saying He demands that level of devotion. Now, this isn't the only time Jesus makes this sort of a statement. Matthew 10, Jesus said, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus essentially says that if we choose our family over Him, we aren't worthy of Him being a part of the kingdom of God. He makes a similar statement in John 14 and 26. But He says that if we choose family over Him, we cannot, cannot be His disciple. Jesus expects our choice of Him to be unrivaled by anyone, even our families. 
Now that's likely as odd sounding to us as it would have been to his original hearers. Yet this is what Jesus demands. This is what Jesus expects. And as we see from Matthew 10 and 37, from Luke 9 and 60 and Luke 14 and 26, it's really the only thing he'll accept. He won't accept a choice that has rivals. And it does bring up the question, though, why? I mean, that's a, that's a big commitment. Why must I choose Jesus over my family? Well, to answer that, we have to remember who Jesus is. Right? He's not just a teacher. He, he's not just a prophet. He, he's not just a miracle worker. He's all of that and more. In John 12, we're reminded that Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 of God in all of His glory was really Jesus in all of His glory. Colossians and Hebrews and Gospel of John tell us that Jesus is the Creator of all things. We're also told that He, he came down to earth and dwelt among us. So that the glorious God of Isaiah 6, the Creator of all that exists, he willingly cast off His glory. And He came to earth and lived as a human. He lived a sinless life. He did great miracles. He taught amazing things. And, such, and He did so many things that He astounded both the religious leaders and the common man alike. Then after about 33 years of life, He was betrayed by one of His disciples and He was murdered on a Roman cross. And yet the cross was not a surprise. In fact, the cross was the very reason He came. But Jesus didn't come just to live a perfect life to, to set an example of how we should live. And He didn't just come to do miracles to show that God was great and awesome. And He didn't just come to teach amazing truths so that we could build our lives on it. He came to die. For your sins and mine. And on the cross, He, he drank in. He, he took, He absorbed all of the wrath of God against all of our sins. And after enduring hell on the cross, He died. and was laid in a tomb for three days. And then He rose victorious over sin and death. And judgment. And now, because of his sinless life and his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection, we can be completely forgiven for our sins. And we can have a hope of eternal life. It's not, I love my wife, I love my daughters. There is very little in life I would rather do than spend time with my family. But as wonderful as they are, they aren't Jesus. They didn't die to pay the penalty that my sins deserved. They didn't rise from the dead so that my sin, guilt, and condemnation could be taken away. They don't make it possible for me to have eternal life. Only Jesus does these things. Therefore, Jesus alone is worthy of our full and complete devotion to Him. Nothing or no one on earth comes close to being as worthy of our, of our devotion as Jesus does. Therefore, our choice of Jesus should be unrivaled, even by our families. 
Now let me say that as a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife, the best thing you can do for your family is to make an unrivaled choice of Jesus. The fear that making an unrivaled choice of Jesus will lead us to neglect our families is rooted in the fact that we really do not know Jesus at all. An unrivaled choice of Jesus, it will lead me to love my wife like Jesus loves the church. If there are any rivals for my devotion and the choice in my life, I won't love my wife in that way. Having an unrivaled devotion of Jesus, it will lead me to love my children as Jesus has loved me. If there are any rivals to my choice and my devotion to Jesus, I will not love them in that way. And if you want to see what happens in action when there are rivals to our choice of God or of Jesus, you can look at the story of King Ahab from 1 Kings chapter 16-22. through 22. What you'll find is a king whose rival for his choice of God is his wife. And it leads him to the path of paganism and it destroys them both and brings the judgment of God upon their entire household. If you want to see what happens when our children are rivals in our choice of Jesus, read the story of Eli and his sons from 1 Samuel 2 through 4. Eli's sons were rivals in his choice of God and his devotion to God. And in making them rivals, the Bible says it turned them into sons of the devil. And they died in judgment to God. Eli did as well. If you want to destroy your marriage, make your spouse a rival to your choice of Jesus. If you want to destroy your children and push them away from Christ, turn them into sons of the devil, you make them the rival of your choice of Jesus. They will absolutely turn that way. If I am to follow Jesus, I must make an unrivaled choice of Jesus. And then, it must be an unwavering choice. It must be an unrivaled choice. It must be an unchanging choice. Another guy comes up to Jesus and he says, Lord, I'll follow you, but first, but first, I want to follow you, but first let me go say goodbye to my family. I, I want to follow you, but first, there's some things I want to do in the world. I, I want to follow you, but first, let me achieve this level of success in my work. I want to follow you, but first, let me find a spouse who completes me. I want to follow you, but first let me live a little bit of a worldly life so that I can enjoy the pleasures of this world. I want to follow you, but first let me go and do something else for a while. Jesus says no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now I know nothing about plowing a straight row but I would imagine it's very difficult to plow a straight roll if you're looking behind you the whole way. I would think it's especially difficult if you have the old-fashioned stuff where you've got an ox pulling something digging into the dirt and you have to keep it going in the right way. If you try to go forward and yet look back, you don't go straight 
at all. You have to be fully devoted to the task at hand. You have to be unchanging. Focus on where you're going, not on where you've been. So it is with the kingdom of God and choosing Jesus. You can't be halfway devoted to Jesus and consider yourself committed to Jesus. You can't start for Jesus and then go back to the world. And then start for Jesus and go back to the world. And then start for Jesus and go back to the world. You can't say, Jesus, I want to follow you, but first let me go and do these other things. You have to choose where your devotion lies and you have to stick with it. As followers of Jesus, there is no place to stop. There is no time to turn back or even to look back. We are warned about this all throughout Scripture. And there are so many examples, I wanted to use them all, but I was afraid we'd run out of time, so I've got two that I want to show you. First, the Hebrew Christians, they considered drawing back. Now, the story of the book of Hebrews is that of people who chose Jesus and their lives began to be hard immediately after that. They chose Jesus and they began to suffer persecution. And at first, they dealt with it joyfully, the Bible said, knowing that they had a more enduring possession in heaven than they were losing on the earth. They suffered greatly. They were made a spectacle of. They they probably suffered physical abuse, verbal abuse, and all of the things that went along with being persecuted and being a minority in those days. But it wasn't stopping. It kept going on. And they began to think, maybe if we went back to Judaism, maybe if we stopped what we were doing and went back to the way we were, it would all stop because back then it was easier. Back then it wasn't so hard. Back then we weren't suffering. Maybe if we went back, it would all be okay again. And the author of Hebrews warns them with these words. We are not of those who draw back to perdition, but those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now there is a contrast between drawing back to perdition and believing to the saving of the soul. Perdition very similar to to damnation. It pictures judgment. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is that if you draw back, you miss out on salvation and you end up in damnation. Now, it would be great to try to make that not as hard as it is. But the teaching there isn't that those who draw back don't live their best life now. The teaching isn't that those who draw back miss out on blessings now and maybe rewards in heaven. The teaching is that those who draw back, they miss heaven. They miss salvation and they face nothing but the sure and certain and horrible judgment of God. There is no drawing back and remaining faithful to Jesus. It must be an unchanging choice of Jesus. But the Hebrews aren't the only ones that we see this sort of an example. Lot's wife looked back. Lot's wife, we may be familiar with the story of Lot's wife. It's mostly told through the story of Lot. We don't even know her name. She's simply called Lot's wife. And the story of Lot is that when Abraham is called by God to go into a land that God will show him, his nephew Lot and his family go with them. 
And as Abraham follows God and lives by faith, God blesses him with an abundance. And that abundance of Abraham, it overflows onto Lot. And Lot also begins to have an abundance. And they have such an abundance that there's not enough. The place where they're all living together, it's not big enough to support both of their flocks. And their herdsmen are starting to fight with one another. And Abraham goes to Lot and he says, hey, it's not right for us to fight. We're brothers. Here's what we'll do. You pick a direction. You go left, I'll go right. Right? You go north, I'll go south. However you want to do it. You pick and you go that way. And then I'll pick and I'll go the other way. Okay? You just you choose first. The Bible says that Lot lifted up his eyes and, and he looked towards the, the well-watered plains of Sodom. And he said, I'll, I'll go that way. And so he moved towards Sodom and, and Abraham moved away. Now Sodom is significant because Scripture also tells us that Sodom was wicked. It was wicked and it was against God. It was a very vile and a horrible place. But Lot didn't just move towards Sodom to the well-watered plains. Over time, Lot moved closer and closer and closer until eventually Lot was living in Sodom among the wicked. But he didn't just live in Sodom among the wicked. He began to adapt to their culture. He began to be one of them. He adopted their values. He adopted their priorities. He adopted their attitudes. He adopted their actions and their reactions. He became a Sodomite. He became one of the people. And the wickedness of Sodom rose up before God. And God said, I'm going to kill Sodom and all the cities of the plains because they've all adopted these values. But Abraham begged God to spare it if there were 50, 45, 40, 20, 10 people. There weren't that many people, but there was Lot, which was really probably who Abraham was most concerned about. So the angels of the Lord went into the city. And Lot found them and he invited them into his house. And while he was there, the men of the city began to say, bring those men out here. We want to know them. We want to have relations with them. Lot, in this point, his, his adaptation to the culture is shown in that what he says to them is, is too horrific to understand. He says, no, no, they're my guests. Don't hurt them. But I'll bring out my virgin daughters and you can do what you want to with them. And they, no, no, we don't want them. We want those men. And the angels, they protect Lot and they protect his daughters. And then they begin to try to lead them out of the city. God is going to destroy this city. And Lot and his family are very hesitant to go, so much so that the Bible says the angels grab them by the hands and, and force them out. And they were told, don't look back. Flee to the mountains and stay. Don't even look back. And as they ran to the mountains, fire and brimstone from God began to fall on the cities of the plains and destroy them. And this happens. His wife looked back behind him. And she became a pillar of salt. See, in Luke 17 and 32, Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife. 
And when Jesus says to remember Lot's wife, what he's reminding us, wanting us to remember, is that in looking back to the world, we can miss the salvation of the Lord and be overcome by the judgment of the Lord, which is what happened to Lot's wife. She looked back, probably began to even go back. And the judgment of God fell down upon her. There is no looking back and being faithful to Jesus. We can't choose Jesus and look back at our other lives and look back at the world and look back at all the stuff we think we're missing out on and still be following Jesus. We have to, to turn away from that and turn full-headed and wholehearted into following Him. Anything less, well, it leads us to a bad place. We don't have time to look at Demas who went back into the world because he loved the things of the world. Or the children of Ephraim who turned back in the day of battle and were overcome. But the Bible has many places that warn us that looking back, going back, drawing back, turning back, it all leads to destruction. It all leads to judgment. It does not lead to the salvation of the Lord. Our choice of Jesus, it must be an unchanging choice. It's not enough that you chose Jesus at some point in your past. It's not enough that at one point you prayed a prayer. It's not enough but at one point, you, you knelt at an altar. It's not enough to even choose Jesus today. You have to choose Jesus today. And then you have to choose Jesus tomorrow. And then you have to choose Jesus the next day. And you have to choose Jesus every day of your life until Jesus comes back or until He calls you home. There is... There is nothing else. If I am to follow Jesus, if you are to follow Jesus, there must be an unchanging choice of Jesus. If we are to be fully devoted followers of Jesus in 2018 and beyond, we must choose Jesus. And choosing Jesus means making an unwavering choice. Good or bad, easy or hard, I'm following Jesus. Choosing Jesus means it must be an unrivaled choice. Jesus repeatedly tells stories. And He says that there's going to come a day where it's not going to be acceptable to follow Me. And your enemies will be those of your own household. Those days you choose Me anyway. He expects that we would choose Him and do His will no matter what. Choosing Jesus must be an unchanging choice. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Anything less and we have not legitimately chosen Jesus in our lives. Let's stand. We're not going to have our musicians come at this time. We're just going to stand and bow our heads. Close your eyes. Today we're going to have a time of silence for the Lord.